everybody, and welcome to another episode of Ear Read This. I'm Ash, your host, and today, following on from our episode on The Tempest, I am once again joined by the Reverend Dr. Paul Edmondson. Paul is head of research at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and the author and editor of many books on Shakespeare. Today, we will talk about a few of them, including his recent collaboration with Stanley Wells, All the Sonnets of Shakespeare. We also talk about Paul's own audio series, Open Your Shakespeare's, and a little bit more on The Tempest. But I started out by asking Paul to tell us a little about The Shakespeare Circle, a wonderful book which Paul edited that focuses on Shakespeare's contemporaries, his friends and his family. Well, I can. And of course, it's co-edited by, by Professor Sir Stanley Wells mm. and me. We, I remember the earliest conversations about this book. We'd, we're both very interested in biography and life writing and obviously Shakespeare's own biography. The, the Shakespeare Circle from Cambridge University Press, as it were, was, was published in time for the 2016 Shakespeare anniversary year. And we knew what we were doing was, was highly original. We'd, we, we'd, we talked initially about producing a co-edited book on the women in Shakespeare's life. And we thought maybe that would be a really interesting project and it still would be. But I, I remember that the, the more we thought about it, the more we realised that Open to us was a whole host of other individuals. And then the Shakespeare Circle began to take shape as our wanting to present through the voices of others, as in a curated collection of essays by, by experts of their individual subjects, the lives of the people to whom Shakespeare was most closely connected, his friends and family, his colleagues. Then it was, well, how do we create that canon? And we started to make a list of, of possible inclusions and had to reduce it. I think what we've we've come up with is a is a reasonably concise canon of individuals with whom you know no one could dispute these were important in Shakespeare's life. Mm. You know, his obviously his, his immediate family and some of his Stratford associates, um, but his you know his friends and I remember I remember as wanting to place Ben Jonson very much in the friends mm. section of the book. That, that was something we were keen to do. Because although Shakespeare was, as it were, a collaborator with Johnson in the sense that they acted in, in, he acted in some of the play, of Johnson's plays, um, he wasn't a collaborator in the sense that he was a collaborator with, with John Fletcher mm. or, or um, George Wilkins, for example. George, George Wilkins, yes, what a, what, a, what a cad he was. His brothels and his, and his um, kicking a pregnant woman in the, in the stomach. So, so then we had a, a section of co colleagues and patrons to remind us of Shakespeare's professional collaborations and connections. Hemings and Condal could have gone into the friends section, I think, but we saw them as colleagues and 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 co-shareholders in their in their business partnerships. I mean, it was I I, I was thrilled, for example, when um, we included the neighbours and beneficiaries mentioned in the will. Susan Brock's essay and Carol Rutter's essay on on Richard Field, close family. Such a fascinating figure, isn't he? Just shows you the kind of contrasting personalities with whom Shakespeare was associated. Thomas Green, his cousin, and his wife Latisse, who lodged at New Place. And while they were there, they had two children 
whom they named William and Anne after yeah. the Shakespeare. Presumably William and Anne were, were godparents to the Green's children. That's a fascinating domestic setup. Susanna Hall as well, who um, oh, I'm sorry Hall. I've forgotten the name of who've, of the person who wrote the essay um, that touched on oh, Lachlan, Lachlan McKinnon. Lachlan McKinnon wrote on Susanna Hall. Um, he 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 is a poet, and I remember I remember we were th- excited about asking a poet to write about the poet's daughter. Uh, Lachlan's also a Shakespeare scholar too. And th- there's a lovely moment where he suggested that um, perhaps the chess playing scene in the Tempest may have uh, had a connection to Susanna and perhaps she was a chess player herself. Yes, which is, you know, potentially revealing of of her upbringing, isn't it? And her own mental ability and agility of mind. Is it it Margaret Drabble in her afterword to the volume who who says, you have to be very clever in order to play chess? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which which, which, Which is a good thought too. I'm interested to hear you say it started off as a as a volume about the women in Shakespeare's life, because one thing I I came away with a really strong impression of is how, how little I knew about how women, girls, are, um, Stratford educated, and what what kind of education they might have gleaned through association, as, as well as um, more traditionally. It was so fascinating. So these these are the uh, sorts of facts and little insights that just bubble up in mm. an approach of this kind. You know, we felt we were playing our part in, let's say, a, a movement of the last 20 years now away from cradle to grave biography and towards something that we, you know, we might think of as, as more innovative by contrast. The intimate biography, the keyhole biography. And, and here we have a biography through the lives of others, the, as it were, looking aside to the left or just beyond the subject or around the subject, hence the metaphor of circle and interconnecting circles and connected lives. We were pleased to quote from Virginia Woolf's Orlando, which, remember, was published as a biography when it was, mm. and it still is, but, but obviously it's, it's a work of fiction. And she encounters Shakespeare several times during during Orlando. And one of the the pleasures of that of, of those moments is that she can't bring herself to say anything truly direct about him so here's a here's a here's an account from orlando of shakespeare he held a pen in his hand but he was not writing he seemed in the act of rolling some thought up and down to and fro in his mind till it gathered shape or momentum to his liking his eyes globed and clouded like some green stone of curious texture were fixed he did not see Orlando. For all his hurry, Orlando stopped dead. Was this a poet? Was he writing poetry? Tell me he wanted to say everything in the whole world, for he had the wildest, most absurd, extravagant ideas about poetry. But how to speak to a man who does not see you, who sees ogres, satyrs, perhaps the depths of the sea it's instead? So Orlando stood gazing while the man turned his pen in his fingers this way and that way and gazed and mused and then very quickly wrote half a dozen lines and looked up. So just as Orlando's been thinking, what can I ask him? What can I find out from him? Is this? And and, and, and later uh, Orlando sees someone. He sat at Twitchett's table with a dirty ruff on. Was it old Mr. Baker come to measure the timber or was it Sha-pa-ra? 
For when we speak names we deeply reverence to ourselves, we never dare speak them whole. You can hear the playfulness of, of, of Wolf, um, but the what, what she's what she's so beautifully portraying is how can we really get close to an individual? Mm. Well, we can't. Because as, as Orlando's thinking about poetry, Shakespeare's just in the business of writing it. And the, and the inner thoughts that Orlando most wants to know about Shakespeare and the secrets of poetry, he never gets around to asking. And Shakespeare's just producing the stuff. And that the, the artistic creation itself, as it were, must remain a mystery uh, in, in terms of its, its production. And, and, and when Wolf visits Stratford, she talks about Shakespeare in 1934. She visits the birthplace and new place and she goes to visit the grave in Holy Trinity Church. And she talks about Shakespeare being serenely absent present. And that, that sense of absent present is, is what we feel the Shakespeare circle evokes through yes. reading Shakespeare, through the lives of others, um, the cast around him, the company around him. What would they say about him if we could get them in a room or at a party and talk to them? And I don't know if you spotted Ash, but we wrote imagined monologues of the characters in the Shakespeare Circle speaking. And, and listeners can find these. If, the, if you just Google the Shakespeare Circle, it will take you to the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust website and you'll be able to hear audio posts of, of 20 or so characters, people from Shakespeare's life speaking short monologues that Stanley and I co-wrote of lasting about a minute or, or two minutes each based on the essays in in the volume the Shakespeare Circle oh terrific no I hadn't seen that so no I will uh they, they, they spoke, some, some are spoken by um quite well-known actors like Jane Lapater speaks Susanna and Barbara Lee Hunt speaks Mary Shakespeare and um Henry Goodman speaks Henry Condal for example but the rest are spoken by uh, people who are around Stratford, either at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust or the Shakespeare Institute. Oh, wonderful. Um, you're absolutely right about that uh, serenely absent present feeling reading the book. There, there's something winningly oblique about Wolfe's descriptions of, of Shakespeare in, in Orlando, which I, I just find deeply attractive in the way that she's in the way that what she's bringing him to life which is what life writing does. That's what biography is supposed to do. You know, a great biography surely should make the subject step up from the page and walk across it and reach out to us and make us want to have conversations with him or her. And that's the art, isn't it? It's a very different project to writing of history because the, the project for biography has always been to, to bring the subject to life. Since producing The Shakespeare Circle with Stanley, I've discovered one of the greatest books in my life, which is Boswell's Life of Johnson. And I, I took a whole year to read it. I started it in Lent 2018. And I, it was always, it was always a very big book, <laughs> but I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't want to rush it. And I knew it was going to take me far longer than Lent, far longer than 40 days. So I thought I'll just, just enjoy it. As soon as I started, I thought this is one of the best books I've ever read. And I just knew it was going to be a book for life. And and I, 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 I then just kept reading it over the weeks and months. And and I saw I can eke this out. You know, why should I why should I let go of this marvellous book as quickly as possible? So it was coming around to the following Lent, um, 
2019. And I decided that I'd just you know, finish it before Ash Wednesday, um, <laughs> 20, 2019, which I, which I did do. But that, what a work that is, a work of devotion and a work of insight and, and a work that, that brings Johnson to life and brings Boswell to life. The fact that we know so much about both of them through it makes it peerless, really, as a biographical project still. I'm so pleased that I decided as soon as I started to read it that everything I liked as I encountered it on the pages, I put a mark down the margin. So my my copy is, is shot through with little pencil lines down the margins. On, on most pages, there's something, um, or on many, on most pages, there's something, which means I've got my sort of um, own anthology of Boswell's yes. life of Johnson, which I can now flick through and, and, and a, a light up on things that, still mean things to me when I when I find them there again. I wanted to ask you about collaboration and and what it's like obviously you've you've written with um Stanley Wells numerous times and I was going to ask you in particular about all the sonnets of Shakespeare what is it like collaborating on a project like that because it it strikes me that you you weren't only editing the sonnets in the radically new way that the book does but also giving your interpretations uh, and and readings of the sonnets which strikes me as something um not just academic but very personal what what's it like collaborating on a on a work like that well thank you i i think perhaps i've i've if you look at my last 20 years of of written work and publication i've sort of really proven myself to be a natural collaborator because it's, it's not only Stanley with whom I've collaborated but I've collaborated with Peter Holbrook and Ewan Fernie and William Mitchell and Kevin Coles and they've all been different models of collaboration but the collaboration with Stanley uh, stands apart from all, all, all my other collaborators. Why? Because from the very first time we started to collaborate on a, a book about the sonnets Back in 2004, it was published for Oxford University Press for their Oxford Shakespeare Topics series. We decided that we would read each other's work and freely comment on it, which a lot of collaborators don't feel happy about, in my experience. And, 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 and I think if a really good model of collaboration is, is freely to comment on each other's work, because then bring a kind of coalescence to the overall output which is going to be greater than the sum of its individual parts if your model of collaboration is well i'm going to write chapter two and you're going to write chapter three and and, and never the twain shall meet and you're actually drawing as it were lines around contributions in that sense it, it it's it's not as much fun and and it's it's not as much of a creative collaboration in the way that well all the sonnets of shakespeare certainly was and the Shakespeare circle was um, in that sense. But all the sonnets of Shakespeare, like the sonnets book from 2004, is very much Stanley and I collaborating in the way that I've described. Mm. So you ask about the edition, the editing of the poems. Well, the, the text we used of Shakespeare was from the Oxford Shakespeare. So, so Oxford University Press gave us permission to use that. And, and of course, the text for the sonnets was Stanley's own text that he produced for the Oxford Shakespeare. And we revisited it a little and we we took away the capitalization of abstract nouns 
because we wanted them to be read more ambiguously than than personifications. The minute you, as it were, put a capital T at the, at the front of time, time becomes like a hooded figure with a scythe walking around <laughs> in your imagination. <laughs> Whereas if you put a small T, somehow the, the scythe and the robe vanish. And it's just, we're talking about time and the passing of time. So we, we, we wanted to leave those personifications you know, open enough for the reader to, to bring to the sonnets should he or she wish to do so. We collaborated on the editing of them in the sense that we each took individual sonnets, produced commentary on them, and then read each other's edition of individual poems, as it were, glosses um, at the foot of the page, and freely commented and, and corrected them or added to them. And I remember turning up to, to you know, my beloved cafe in, in Stratford-upon-Avon, Box Brownie, most days while we were collaborating with the typescripts under my arm of, of Stanley's edition of six sonnets I'd looked at and commented on, and then he'd pass over to me pages that he'd commented on of my edition of the sonnets, individual sonnets. And, and you know, these are, we might think of this as, as, as being similar to Shakespeare's sugared sonnets among his private friends, you know, being passed around <laughs> in literary London on, 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 in manuscript. This is what it felt like, you know, carrying six sonnets under my arm and going to talk to the editor about them with, with some of my own ideas as well and, and vice versa. Uh, but, but one morning, Ash, I remember as we were puzzling over some glosses, Stanley just said to me really directly, you know, Paul, these are such difficult poems. These are such difficult poems. And I just said, Stanley, if you and I think that, what about our readers? And as, and as touching and as beautiful and as mind and life enhancing as the sonnets of Shakespeare are, they are difficult. Many of them are difficult. Most of them are difficult. And we realised that from that point on that we must give our readers more help with these remarkable poems because the editions we've been looking at and every editor climbs on the shoulders of giants. You know, the editions we've been looking at, Colin Burrow, John Kerrigan, Catherine Duncan-Jones, Stephen Booth, none of them told you what individual lines actually mean. And they'd, you know, they'd gloss individual words and compare them to other Shakespearean works and so on, but you were struggling over a line or two, no help whatsoever. So what we, what we were going to do about that? So we decided that we would do two things. One was that we would produce a thumbnail sketch, as we call them, at the, at the foot of each sonnet which is a, a brief summary of the poem printed above it. So either you read the poem first and then you think, oh, a summary, or as Greg, Gregory Doran, the RSC said, the actors, because he tried, he tried our edition out on some of the actors and, and he said, oh, they love the thumbnail sketches because you can flick through and say, oh, I think I fancy one of those, like, like choosing a chocolate from a, from a box <laughs> and then read the sonnet <laughs> above it. So it, it, it sort of lets you know what you're in for if you decide to commit to reading whichever poem you light on uh, before you read it. And then at the back of the volume, there are these paraphrases in prose, which we were very keen on. And, and we paraphrase every single sonnet, not just the 1609 sonnets. We paraphrase um, the others from the plays because there's 182 sonnets in sonnets of Shakespeare by the time you add the ones from the plays and the Passionate Pilgrim and alternative versions and so on. And those paraphrases, readers are invited to kick against them and write their own if they don't like what we've done but they are full and they 
are explicatory and they will, we hope, show how Shakespeare was presenting his own thought poetically, but in our prose. And so they read literally and they read awkwardly. And we wanted them to do that in order for, the, for readers to feel they could kick against them and feel they could stand analytically over them, as it were. Uh, but I, I think, really, I think that our literal paraphrases get you quite a long way in terms of understanding what these poems are actually about. And of course, we can't explain or portray every ambiguity in the richness of Shakespeare's poetry. We had to choose in terms of meaning in one sense rather than another. But the poems aren't going to go anywhere, you know. Our paraphrases, we hope, will only help readers. That's why we did it. We just wanted people to feel they could enjoy the sonnets even more with with a bit of help. It certainly helped out me with a few. Um. <laughs> well, and we also, there's a, level, there's a level at which, you know, going back to what we were saying about Prospero and, and, and Shakespeare, and and his poetic project if you if you read maybe like three or four paraphrases one after the other maybe you do feel like you're stepping into shakespeare's mind somehow and his shaping of thought and how he wants to express himself and his awkwardnesses and his surrealism in some cases as well the imagery that he's drawing on i was going to ask you whether you thought um the tempest had a particularly strong bond to the sonnets in terms of being addressing shakespeare's own art and and in other ways as well, it, it, like its attitude towards towards gender um, and and similar similar figures, uh, you know, an absent powerful female who is can only be described by men like Prospero. When I think about the sonnets in relation to the Tempest, gender is not the first thing I think of, although gender awareness, as it were, is writ large in our edition, as you know, because we take pains to say at the foot of every 1609 sonnet, whether it's addressed to a male or a female, or whether it could be addressed to either, mm. or whether it's addressed to no one, because 25 of them are meditations, personal meditations by Shakespeare. 121 out of 154 are addressed to people real or imagined, and not necessarily only two people, as critics have lazily assumed for centuries, but to lots of different kinds of, of, mm. of, of men and women. And we know this because of the forms of address. Um, and the way they're described across the different poems. Um, and then 25 of meditations, and, and then six are addressed to abstract concepts like time or the muse. But we, we do take pains to to unpack the gendering of these poems because no one else has done that before we before us, and we were, we were really keen to do that because it, it just changes the way we think about them. It, it moves the conversation on. You know, I've, I've opened at random... Sonnet 41, those pretty wrongs that liberty commits. This happens to be a bisexual love triangle sonnet. Um, we say that the second of three sonnets with 40 and 42 on either side of it, addressed to a male who has taken away the poet's female loved one. That's an example of when the gendering is really clear. Sonnet 86, was it the proud full sail of his great verse bound for the prize of all too precious you? We light on a, a uh, on a tempest connection because of the ship sailing, <laughs> yeah. the great bound, uh, the all too precious island, and uh, and so on. Um, was it his spirit by spirits taught to write above a mortal pitch that struck me dead? Actually, this is quite quite 
like this is quite connected to the tempest it turns out this is at random but we say could be addressed to either male or female you know which applies to to most of the sonnets address uh, of the 121 sonnets mm. which are addressed to people by 85 of them could be to a male or a female um but going back to the the tempest there's i just immediately thought of three and now there's 86 staring <laughs> in the face but i thought i thought that i thought that sonnet 15 reminded me a little of the tempest when i consider everything that grows holds in perfection but a little moment that this huge stage presenteth naught but shows whereon the stars in secret influence comment when i perceive that men as plants increase cheered and checked even by that self-same sky vaunt in their youthful sap at height decrease and wear their brave state out of memory then the conceit of this inconstant stay sets you most rich in youth before my sight where wasteful time debateth with decay to change your day of youth to solid night and all in war with time for love of you as he takes from you i engraft you new now engrafting of course is a, a gardening metaphor but it's about new growth and i think that's partly prospero's project in in the tempest the engrafting of new life onto miranda onto the people who whom have usurped who, who whom have usurped him and then the, the sense of the magical and the theatrical as well the the huge stage presented naught but shows and the stars somehow commenting on it as well i think there's a and the braves where their brave state and a brave new world i i think i think there's there's something of the tempest maybe if i if i for me as a reader in in sonnet 15 another one is sonnet 55 which reminds me of prospero's ability to resurrect people from their graves not marble nor the gilded monuments of princes shall outlive this powerful rhyme but you shall shine more bright in these contents than unswept stone besmeared with sluttish time when wasteful war shall statues overturn and broils root out the work of masonry nor mars his sword nor war's quick fire shall burn the living record of your memory gainst death and all oblivious enmity shall you pace forth your pet praise shall still find room even in the eyes of all posterity that wear this world out to the ending doom so till the judgment that yourself arise you live in this and dwell in lovers eyes so by reading this poem as i've just done I'm somehow seeing the resurrected image of the lover to whom Shakespeare was addressing this poem. And similarly in Sonnet 81, when I get to the end of it and speak its spell-like couplet, you still shall live, such virtue hath my pen, where breath most breathes, even in the mouths of men. That's Shakespeare's lover being present in my breath, in my mouth. Because I've just spoken the words. Well, the, the, these two sonnets seem to me to have quite obvious connections to the the magic that we find bodied forth within in the Tempest. 
And then, of course, one of the one of the sources for the tempest, and one of the sources indeed for that great speech about resurrection from Prospero is Ovid. And uh, one of the sonnets certainly begins by quoting four lines from Ovid, and is about the sea. Sonnet sixty. Like as the waves make towards the pebbled shore, so do our minutes hasten to their end, each changing place with that which goes before, in sequent toil all forwards do contend. Nativity, once in the main of light, crawls to maturity, where with being crowned, crooked eclipses gainst his glory fight, and time that gave doth now his gift confound. Time doth transfix the flourish set on youth, and delves the parallels in beauty's brow, feeds on the rarities of nature's truth, and nothing stands but for his scythe to mow. And yet, to times in hope, my verse shall stand, praising thy worth, despite his cruel hand. And so the tempest is as, as I think about it, is a time play, like The Winter's Tale is a time play, and so is The Comedy of Errors, 33 years in The Comedy of Errors, and 16 years in The Winter's Tale, and 12 years in The Tempest. And of course the image of the ocean, isn't it? The, the image of time eroding us as the waves erode the shore. Um, and to mention Virginia Woolf, of course, she was fascinated by yeah. the sea. And famously, to the lighthouse, she wanted the sound of the sea all the way through it. And and I feel that about Twelfth Night or What You Will, um, especially because of the you know the desire as portrayed in in Illyria. But it, you know it's there on it, and it's there in in the Tempest, isn't it? The Tempest is such a sea play, um, and and Prospero is not only a, a master magician, but he's you know, he's master of the ocean as well. He's master of life and death. He's master of the island. And then he gives it all away, or we allow him to give it away with our applause. So that applause moment is a bit similar, isn't it, to Shakespeare putting the, the lover into our mouths or into our, eye, or into our eyesight in, uh, in sonnets 81 and 55. We know Prospero's in the power of our hands. We, we connect to his freedom and to his magic by by applauding and to his prayer by putting our hands together at the end of the play it reminds me of what you said earlier about how simply and deeply the prayer and the divine is felt in the tempest and i think you know the exercise you and i've just been embarked on in thinking about sonnets which remind me of the tempest it's really important that we don't think about shakespeare's sonnets as as it were like mini speeches from the plays or um, could be spoken by Shakespeare's characters. And certainly all the sonnets of Shakespeare shows a, a great difference in diction between the 1609 sonnets and the sonnets Shakespeare was writing embedded within dramas. And, and in thinking about those sonnets that I've just mentioned in relation to The Tempest, I'm not saying, oh, they're supposed to be Prospero speaking. And all I'm saying is they remind me a little of you know, some of the concerns of, of the Tempest, which indicate that it's the same mind at work across the sonnets and across the plays, and helps us, I think, maybe to integrate the sonnets more into the plays. But all the sonnets of Shakespeare 
in the way we've set out the sonnets chronologically and removed at a stroke the tedious narrative that's been plaguing these poems since the 18th century. They set the sonnets free, I think, as Prospero sets Ariel free. Free to become individual poems in their own right, written by Shakespeare over at least 27 years, as far as anyone knows, a form he couldn't leave behind, couldn't stop writing sonnets. Wrote them throughout his whole career. It was a form in which he was able to work things out personally for himself. And so, you know, we we very much present the sonnets as insights into Shakespeare's own autobiography, his own personality in all the sonnets of Shakespeare. And that's a very different proposition to reading them biographically because of the 18th century narrative. It's not about that at all. It's about, look, 25 of these at least seem to be personal meditations. So what we're going to do with them? How can, how can we read them? If they are, as we suspect, you know, written from Shakespeare's own perspective, all poets write from their own perspective, then, then how do we read them? How does this change conversations about Shakespeare's sonnets? Maybe, maybe we need something like the Sonnet Circle as our next uh, collaborative volume that we think about ways into Shakespeare through individual lines in the sonnets. Maybe, maybe I've just had an idea for our there next collaboration, Ash. <laughs> as what a scoop for the podcast here. Yeah. <laughs> the sonnet cycle and now the sonnet circle. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't, don't want anyone else to take the idea, of course. So I don't know if you should we'll trademark it out, now. Has, it's copyright. It's my intellectual yeah. property. <laughs> <laughs> the only last thing I was going to ask you about was Open Your Shakespeare's, this huge oh, project you've yeah. undertaken of uh, recording speeches and sonnets from Shakespeare for 366 days. I just wanted to ask you, how, how, what's it like reflecting on it and, and how did you come to, to embark on it? Thank you. Well, we were early into lockdown and it got to the 25th of March. And it's not the first time during a national and international crisis that I've reached for Shakespeare. <laughs> I think a lot of people do. I remember memorably reaching for Shakespeare on the day I woke up and heard that um, the uh, Princess of Wales had died in the car accident back in 1997. And I was making a train journey on that morning. And I thought, I've got to take my Shakespeare with me because how will I cope if I don't have Shakespeare with me? So Shakespeare does play that part in our personal and national and international perspectives. And it got to the 25th of March. And I thought, I can just start recording a bit of Shakespeare every day. I, I thought this might be something that people might like to listen to. I could easily make them available via social media. And of course, once I'd started, it's like, well, when do you stop? I maybe after about six months, I thought, obviously, I'm going to try and keep this going for a year if I can. So I ended up, Ash, with 366 readings from Shakespeare that last on average. Some of them are quite short, but some of them and some of them are like maybe two minutes long or one minute might be the average length of them. They're not, you know, they're not onerous in that sense. They're not going to require a lot of listening. But I, I was keen to contextualise them all briefly at the beginning and to say either why I'd chosen it or then it was the challenge and the really energising thing about the project was every day I'd wake up not knowing what passage of Shakespeare I was going to do unless I oh. 
thought about it a little bit in advance, but usually I hadn't for most of them. And I'd just be listening alertly to the news or especially to Radio 3, uh, classical music. And, and I'd hear about anniversaries or special events or newsworthy items. I think, oh, which, which bit of Shakespeare does that might that connect to or remind me of? And then I'd present Shakespeare in that context. So Open Your Shakespeare's is a sort of Shakespearean diary journal for my lockdown. And as public as these anniversaries are, you know, it's, it's, it's as it were my selection of Shakespeare that has brought insights to that anniversary or that event or, or that bit of news. Or it might just be as some of them are, I really like this bit and I was reading the play the other day. And, you know, let's hear this bit from Venus and Adonis, for example, I seem to remember being one of those moments. I'm so pleased I've done it because it's a sort of, it sort of feels as I've produced a, a Prospero's book of, of an anthology uh, that's organic and that's, that's lived with me. And you ask me if I've reflected on it. Well, no, I haven't, apart from along the lines I've just been telling you. I've not gone back and listened to 366 extracts, but I could. They're all on my SoundCloud account. And perhaps I'll, I'll start to do that um, every day for the next year, who knows? And some, you know, I hope some of them were amusing, that some of them were challenging. Some of them I seem to remember with a, a lot of the political shenanigans that were going on last year. I, I intended to be quite hard hitting in, in, in that sense. So they're not, it's not all touchy feely nicey nicey at all. I think this is a robust anthology as I have come to think about it. And, and one that has a tough edge as well as one that I'm sure would give the listener insights not only into Shakespeare and our lockdown experience, but also in, into me. Yeah, I think every uh, poet has a sort of fantasy of keeping a keeping a sonnet diary, or so, or you know, you know, having that year where I, you know, I wrote a sonnet every week or every month or, or something like that. And uh, you've seemed you've 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 done something um, rather like that. I think I, when people do look back on that year. What better way to do it than than through Shakespeare? That's gonna it's gonna take the edge off looking <laughs> looking back at um, twenty twenty. Also, I think there's just something really healthy about hearing Shakespeare mm. read, as well as watching Shakespeare either in the theatre, which of course we couldn't do in lockdown, or or on film. Yeah, I think there's something extremely freeing about just hearing the words, which I've always liked. So I think there was an element of that in what I was doing too. That my wanting to speak the words of Shakespeare to other people was part of what was driving me. Oh, well, Paul, thank you so much. I, I, I love the series and I, I'm going to listen to the to the rest of them. Um, thank you, Ash. Thank you for having me on, on Ear Read This. And thank you all for listening. That's all we've got time for today. A huge thank you once again to, to my guest, Paul Edmondson. If you check the episode description box below, you can find links to uh, read a little bit more about Paul's work. And I've left a link to the SoundCloud for Open Your Shakespeare's too. If you want to support the podcast, there's links down there uh, to leave reviews or to uh, donate using the coffee app. I'll be back soon. And until next time, happy reading. <laughs>